0: Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Spin Class. We're talking politics. Your host, Michael Fragan, Phil Goldfeder, away this week on the Nachum Siegel Network, nachumsegel.com, and around the world on Arut Sheva, Israel National News slash radio. And wow, wow, yet another week of unprecedented, unprecedented Washington intrigue. I don't even know what else to say. I mean, really... We have kind of crossed, we keep crossing new lines of, of politics. You know, we used to be careful. People used to be careful about what they say. People used to be careful about what they, you know, the way in which they characterize people, measured politics, but that has gone out the window in this new administration. Uh, it's an interesting paradigm, and I think the president promised blunt talk. He promised to be disruptive. He promised to shake things up, and that is exactly what he has done, certainly for the public discourse. I don't want to say uh, it necessarily has changed fundamentally uh, any and uh, altered everybody's day-to-day life here because the big-ticket items have not actually been accomplished that were thought to that the president was swept into office for uh, aside from a lot of regulatory reform and and the like, but as far as the discourse as far as attacking, shaking up officialdom in Washington. Uh, we had yet another week now where the president has taken on not just one, not just two, but three Republican senators. Uh, John McCain less so, Bob Corker uh, certainly, and then Senator Jeff Flake from Arizona takes to the Senate floor and essentially excoriates the president and says that he's not going to run again because he can't run a campaign in Arizona the kind of campaign that he's going to feel comfortable with he can't run for re-election and he was polling very poorly admittedly but he can't run the kind of election that he wants to in this environment and keep a clear conscience and you know it's funny that is the thing that a lot of people have, a problem with politicians, because the fact that they say one thing in public, they say another thing in private. And the idea that you can't say anything that might be used against you eventually, the president has no such compunction. I mean, the president says, tweets, does things that really seem to have no strategy purpose, and we've discussed this many times. It's just seems to be all the time that we're kind of going and lurching from one crazy pronouncement to another. And why do I say it's crazy? It's not that I think, and I said this last week when Phil and I talked about it, I actually think there is some kind of method here. I think that either there is a distraction, either the president just is, is freewheeling and that style endears him to people and he thinks that that's the way it's going to go. But at the same time, the president doesn't seem to be able to want to accomplish what he wants to accomplish if he wants to accomplish anything. Because at the same time you are reshaping the Republican Party in your image in the way that you want, and we can I want to get into that a little bit more as far as kind of the new paradigm in the Republican Party. But at the same time he's doing that, he's getting himself further away from accomplishing anything. Right. I mean, you need 52 votes in the you need 51 votes in the Senate to get anything done. There are 52 Republicans. If you attack 3 of them, just by virtue of simple arithmetic, you're pushing them further away from accomplishing your agenda. And you might say, "Oh, they're not running for re-election." But they're still going to be there until the end of next year. And that potentially is a 2-year window that is just wasted because of petty personal attacks you know, taking on Twitter about you know, the the president seems to have an obsession with the short people, right? Little Marco, little Bob Corker, uh, whatever that is. Uh, people, you know, in some ways, it's funny. Corker is not exactly the kind of guy that you want that, to, that seems to be willing to just kind of take it. Uh, John McCain, a, a true American hero, to kind of go after him is just bizarre. And Jeff Flake, who now seems to be totally unburdened, um, and I urge anybody listening that they should go actually watch his speech on the Senate floor, not because there's so much in it, in a sense, but you kind of see the resignation of a person who's an idealist, or at least believes in ideals, and Jeff Flake has always been somewhat of an iconoclast. I mean, he's he is a tr- true Goldwater-type Republican, a libertarian uh, of the you know the old mold and just seems to be lamenting the idea that there's kind of no place for him in Republican politics anymore. And you know this is the issue with the party system. It's not about personalities. You still have to run in primaries. If you can't win a primary, you can't get into the general and therefore you can't win and there's no point in staying. Now, of course, you could say, oh, he's given up. It doesn't make sense. Don't take your marbles and go home. You got to fight. If you believe in ideals, you should fight. Uh, that's not. It's not for me to calculate what Jeff Flake should be doing or what Bob Corker should be doing. Um, you know, I, I think it's good for a lot of. There's, it's definitely good to have a fresh face in the Senate. I don't think necessarily having them uh, forcing them to stay in forever, and you know, it can be very difficult on your family, on yourself, the constant attacks and the the untruths, and especially running against people like a, a Kelly Ward, who is a conspiracy theorist, um, who is. Uh, way out there on a lot of positions, uh, she was taking him on. But you know, Jeff Flake um, on immigration, in particular, is a pro-immigration Republican, or at least uh, what I what what we would call these days a pro-immigration Republican. And Jeff Flake was out of touch with, particularly the electorate in Arizona, where the Republicans are very are much more Joe Arpaio than they are Jeff Flake. And you saw that he saw the writing on the wall. However, what we don't, we aren't acknowledging as well, and this is something that Bannon and Trump and those in the White House making these political calculations is there is a formidable and strong Democrat in the race. And if you go ahead, and that's what Jeff Flake was looking at as well, if he goes too far for the right, he can't win the general election. Arizona is a state that Donald Trump carried by three points. He didn't carry it by 20 points. Uh... Arizona is actually a state that Hillary Clinton at one point thought she was going to win. I think that was obviously a huge mistake. She probably should have focused on the upper Midwest, but instead she went to Arizona and tried to win that state in the 2016 election. But it's not a state that overall is unreachable for Democrats to pick up a win there. So the more they take Jeff Flake out of the equation, a guy who probably without a Republican primary probably would have won reelection in Arizona... Uh, now you're taking him and you're replacing him. We don't know exactly, but at least there's a chance that Kelly Ward, who is far out in the mainstream, who probably cannot win a general election, it's a republic it's a democratic pickup in 2018. You have now, if your grand strategy is to remake the Republican Party in your image, you still have to elect people. You still have to get them, into office. It's not just enough. I mean, if it, if all your aim is is to dethrone the current people and get rid of them, do you want to replace them with Democrats if you're a Republican? This is where the whole thing becomes counterproductive. And if you think that the president has a strategy or the White House has a strategy or the political operation or Bannon has a strategy in order to do this, it's hard to see it right now. Yes, Alabama, Roy Moore, Alabama is a state that has very difficult time electing a democrat let's put it that way one of the reddest states much more than arizona but actually a fox news poll this week has that race at a dead heat because roy moore is so far out there and we've kind of tried this back in 2012 right we had tried this we the republicans far right sarah palin type uh figures Ran primaries and they won primaries, Republican primaries in Indiana, they won Republican primaries in Delaware, and they were Republican primaries in Missouri and in Nevada. And those candidates all lost in the general election, and those were expected to be Republican pickups. That was the last cycle of this cycle. And those were expected to bet to that was the last time. I'm sorry, it was 2014. And we were expecting that. So it wasn't this Senate cycle. And we were expecting a Republican pickup just like this year when you see a lot of vulnerable, potentially, or at least on paper, vulnerable Democrats in West Virginia, Joe Manchin, Heidi Heinkamp, uh, and you see them or uh, Nelson, Senator Nelson in Florida. uh, Those are states that Trump won handily and in theory should be vulnerable to the Republicans. That map, the Republicans right now are spending most of their time talking about primaries and talking about potential primaries instead of looking to the electoral map of where they can pick up seats. They're not even running right now. Montana is another one. Uh, uh, they're not even thinking about playing offense, which if you're, if you're thinking about this, that is not what was expected. Right now, you would have expected to figure out a way and to have a strategy that you would go ahead and expands the Republican majority, which is at 52 states, the 52 seats, the president keeps saying he can't get anything done. He can't get enough done. Well, the way you're going to get things done is if you elect more Republicans. I mean, this is just the politics of it. It's not a judgment about who to be in office, but it would seem to be, but it would seem to be, it's illogical to go after, uh, to go after your own party on a consistent basis it's not once it's not twice i understand the idea that you that you sometimes you got to call people out but this is over and over and over how many republicans has the president or allies of the president Attacked, And I'm not talking about minor attacks. I'm talking about real attacks. How many have they attacked? I mean, Mitch McConnell was a consistent basis. Okay. Dean Heller in Nevada, they attacked. Now he made him especially vulnerable. He has a primary in Nevada, and he might go ahead and lose that. Well, he might win the primary and then be vulnerable. Uh, he, there's another a formidable Democrat running there. He might lose the primary, and that would be a Democratic pickup. In Nevada, that's a state that Hillary Clinton won. As I said, Arizona, that could be a Democratic pickup. Okay, Flake is not running. President attacked him. Bob Corker in Tennessee, probably not a pickup for—probably not a loss for the Republicans, at least not now. But this is a place where uh, you would expect a Republican to win, and you have the incumbent now leaving office, partly, I'm sure— I'm sure he was done as well, but he partly because of consistent attacks from the president. He attacked, and the president attacked Mitch McConnell. But let's step back for a second and talk about Jeff Flake. You know who's Jeff Flake? If we're here in New York, New Jersey, in the upper in in the Northeast, do people really have an idea about who Jeff Flake is? And the funny thing about this entire thing is, those who follow politics, is that the president has termed Jeff Flake. He says, oh, "I thought he was a Democrat." And the media has talked about Jeff Flake as a moderate Republican. Those who know about his career, it certainly brings a smile, if not a laugh, because Jeff Flake is probably amongst the most conservative Republicans in Washington. Not mildly conservative, but true rock-ribbed conservative in the Barry Goldwater libertarian mode. But these days, it's not enough to be conservative. There is a new paradigm. It's kind of this nationalist, protectionist, nativist ethos. This, this That's the spirit of the Republican Party. It's not about being conservative. It's not about being ideologically conservative because Jeff Flake had two problems in his conservativism. He was a free trader, which seems to be a lot of Republicans have retreated from that. And he is, as I said... Willing to make solutions or willing to come to solutions with regard to immigration, so he would be called pro-immigration, which is certainly uh, offends the nativist wing of the Republican Party. Now, Donald Trump represents both of those, and Robert Trump is not particularly conservative on a lot of other issues. I mean, Jeff Flake was in the House before he was in the Senate was a was the guy who I don't want to say single handedly, but really campaigned to get rid of earmarks and pork. Projects. He didn't take them and he continued to rail against them and that became a conservative calling card that you were going to be against earmarks and therefore you that was a sign of being conservative. That was a sign of fiscal restraint. That was a sign of being conservative. Jeff Flake was that guy. Jeff Flake has been, I mean he comes from a uh, pioneer Mormon family and I think we see a trend amongst uh, Mormon politicians in being the most, I mean Utah certainly Being the state that's probably the most resistant to Trump. I think that was the worst, his worst primary showing in the Republican primary. Uh, Mormons are generally pro immigration. Uh, They're general, so. It, despite the fact they have a lot of other conser- conservative positions. Uh, and Flake has always been a conservative. He has incredible ratings from the conservative. And the fact that the president doesn't seem to, un- to to acknowledge the fact that he's a conservative, or at least, the and even the press doesn't say, Jeff Flake is a real conservative, and this is actually interesting crossroads for cons- the conservative, small-c conservative movement out there. It's that... A sp- conservative like Jeff Flake doesn't feel comfortable in this new Republican Party paradigm. And a lot of you know, what is Steve Bannon? Is Steve Bannon a conservative? I mean, uh, some would say yes, but, you know, there's the old conservative party of, or let's say the conservative wing of the Republican Party didn't embrace most of these Bannon ideas and still doesn't. Um, but I guess the party's kind of reflected in who the elected officials are. And if people like Flake are no longer around and they're replaced with more nativist, protectionists, nationalist Types, then that essentially will be the Republican Party. The funny thing is that that used to be the Democratic Party. I mean, if you wanted to look at protectionism, if you wanted to look at, uh, if you want to look at those people who oppose free trade, that was the Democratic Party for many years. And have to see how the parties adjust to that. But that is, you know, that in fact to me is the most interesting point here is the fact of going after Flake in that position. And, you know, just to go back to it for a second, I mean the Republicans need to figure out how they're gonna do this. How you're gonna do this with the president. Yes, they have to pass tax reform. We've talked about that. But how do you pass tax reform if you can't if you can't control your rhetoric? You can't you don't get things done in any it's not about you can't get things done in any political environment just through bullying. Yeah, you can threaten. Yes, you can do it. But you have to under—you have to demonstrate to the person why it's in their best interest to accomplish something. And the way to do that, in my mind, is certainly not to make outlandish claims. I mean, the idea that Bob Corker brought us the Iran deal. I mean, you could turn around and say that Bob Corker... Had an amendment to the Iran deal, but I think knowing what happened and knowing the history of it, the Obama and the administration were going to push through the Iran deal no matter what was going to happen. Okay, they were going to get it done if they didn't have to go to Congress, they were going to do that too. Yes, I think in the end, the Corker-Menendez legislation was probably a mistake. um, Just knowing what we know now, but that doesn't necessarily mean that Bob Corker is responsible. Um, If anything, he probably moderated the deal somewhat, but there's certainly, you you know, the the Obama, and as we know, the propaganda that Ben Rhodes and others threw out there around the deal, it was likely going to happen anyway. Um, You know, just one last comment with regard to the whole flake Trump thing. I mean, it, it is quite... Incredible to have the president who is a Democrat, who was a Democrat, let's say, until this decade, um, who was a liberal Democrat. I mean, he was for gun control. He was for abortion. He was, I mean, pretty much uh, a donor to all Democrats, attacking a guy with the credentials of Jeff Flake and so many Republicans going along with it. It's... Um, it's quite it's quite remarkable when you think about it. Because in Washington you always had to have some bona fides to kind of back you up. You always had to have a reputation for being and the funny thing is everybody can slap this idea that Jeff Flake is a is a moderate, weak moderate and everything. And then you know somehow that sticks and that becomes the narrative that Bob Corker is a weak moderate. Bob Corker was elected as a a red conservative ran a very right wing campaign when he ran the first time in Tennessee, I think against Harold Ford jr. So it's kind of, it's kind of remarkable that this is the way, the state of the discourse. Uh, now let's just talk about Bannon because I think Bannon's speech to uh, this past week, the uh, Hudson is to, I actually, I'm sorry. He talked about this. Uh, I, don't remember, but, the, but Bannon talked about his philosophy or his philosophy with, uh, with regard to politics, and it's not a governing philosophy. It's just a campaign philosophy, okay, and it's win at all costs and win, 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 okay, just a quote from him. Victory begets victory. We don't have a problem with ideas. We have a problem with understanding how to win. It's about winning. Nothing else matters. If you want to take your state back, if you want to take your country back, you're going to have to roll your sleeves up. There is no one person: Donald Trump, Mark Meadows, Ted Cruz, Laura Ingraham, Steve Bannon. They are not going to get this done. What's going to get this done is each and every one of you and the people in this convention. How do we pull off the win? We pulled off the win by having the RNC, the Republican establishment, put their shoulder to the wheel with the Trump campaign, state by state. We had a strategy. We knew we had to win Florida, North Carolina, Ohio, and Iowa just to get to the table. I don't think a Republican living memory has done that. Once we got there, we had two paths to victory. But let's just say, we we did it through a coalition. We had to bring together populist, nationalists, and evangelical Christians and conservatives and establishment Republicans. We had to put our differences aside in order to win. Okay, so we win at all costs, doesn't matter about ideas, doesn't matter about policy, et cetera. But. Now that you won, now what? Right, you still have to win everything. You 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 talk about putting your policy, you're putting differences aside in order to win. Now you're in Washington. You have a a fairly, uh, like say a somewhat, uh, fractured GOP of 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 multiple factions: moderates, nationalists, protectionists, uh, libertarians, conservatives, etc. And now you have to govern, but you know, you're willing to put the differences aside in order to win the campaign, but you're not willing to put your differences aside in order to get legislation done. And that is, um, to me, that's the puzzling part of it. You know, Bannon is out there willing to throw stones and he's certainly been liberated by the fact that he's no longer in the White House and put this, in, put this coalition together. At, but now he, he is you know, declaring war on the Senate GOP and that doesn't actually get anything done. Okay, a couple more items. I mean, Donald Trump, the president, is going to declare war on the opioid epidemic today. And this is, seems that he has now announced that he's going to declare war on it several times. We'll see what actually happens today. Uh, apparently, it doesn't know that the cabinet agencies have actually been clued into this. Uh, you know, that is an interesting uh, point. The other... Thing very interestingly is that the Clinton dossier. I'm sorry, the Clinton campaign seemed uh, through distantly through a intermediary, uh, or maybe it was the DCCC, or maybe it was the DNC. Not clear exactly who it was, but they went ahead and completed or paid for the dossier on. President Trump, the Russian dossier that, you know, found uh, all compiled by a British secret agent, they went ahead and actually had paid for that. Which is pretty incredible when you think about it, that number one, this hasn't come out and it, it's a, but you know, it's Opal research. It's not that big a deal. But this was originally commissioned for a Republican primary, and the DNC picked it up. And nobody has said anything for months and months and months about this dossier and nobody wanted to take now. Clearly somebody in the Democratic establishment knew about it. There's no question that somebody should have come forward and said, okay, we own it, we paid for it, etc. you know, that's 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 the course of things. It is I you know, criminal is as is, is the extent of Mike Flynn working for foreign government and not disclosing it type of thing, not in my point, not in my view. I don't think I think there's a difference between campaigns doing things and government officials doing things, and that seems to be a difference. But You know, it definitely raises a lot of eyebrows and should be investigated. There's no question about it that the fact that this was somewhat, uh, that this was out there should do it. Uh, There's also a report that Cambridge Analytica approached, which was a a firm that was doing data work for the Trump campaign, approached WikiLeaks, Julian Assange, uh, for dirt on for the Clinton emails and they thought that they had the Clinton emails and for dirt on the Clinton campaign, which of course uh, is not surprising at this point. Uh, It seems pretty clear, but here we have a direct link between WikiLeaks, which has been denied. And, you know, remember the president said during the campaign, he loves WikiLeaks. Um, You know, I'm sure that some of the CIA were cringing at the time, uh, but that seems to be the case. uh, Many things uh, when, when he says that. So, you know, that is we're just gonna be stuck, it seems, for a while with regard to this morass of the uh of of the Russia investigations and the investigations, you know, over and over. Let's uh I wanna – would definitely be remiss in not talking about the issue with Ledavid Johnson and the Gold Star mother and the president essentially taking her on and So two things here that just—number one is why, as we said this last week. I mean, you can not you got to be able to just step back and say, I'm sorry for your loss and let it sit. But the president just doesn't seem to allow that. And, you know, then you have General Kelly. The president denied at first that he said anything of the sort to the family about— yeah, this is what you signed up for. Of course, then General Kelly and others kind of got up and said, no, that's essentially what he said, but he didn't mean it like that so the denial and the fact that there was a tape and there hasn't been a tape and there isn't a recording and the president doesn't really have proof and other people were on the call and why was the congresswoman there and yes was she grandstanding yes but then general kelly comes on and accuses her of grandstanding at an fbi uh dedicate building dedication and the video seems to show otherwise so general kelly has now cheapened himself by getting into this it's just you know what is it about this that you feel that you have to continue to punch below you know punch down i mean that seems to be the pre- the president's issue all the time you, you take on people your own size um i don't know the only person i can think of who be his own size would be like putin and he doesn't take him on uh but you know you to punch down to a gold star uh, you know to then after all this everything is said and done uh that the whole country is kind of outraged on this. The president essentially called her a liar again and said, well, I didn't say what she said. I remembered his name. Uh, Even yesterday he goes on and uh, when, when asked by reporters, he said, of course, I knew I'm really smart. I have the most phenomenal memory ever. That's definitely our spend of the week, by the way. Uh, You know, his, his, uh, the memory comment is just, uh, I went to an Ivy league school. I'm a pretty good student and I have the best memory ever. He didn't even want to acknowledge the fact that they might not have called him by his name in the beginning, even though that seems to be like six people heard that, and that was what they were most surprised about it. I mean, the president's philosophy is fighting back always, all the time, on everything. And he seems to have an, uh, his aides do the same thing. I mean, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, I mean, or the Sean Spicer, uh, General Kelly, whoever it was, fight back on every single issue. Give no ground ever. And that is not a winning governing philosophy. I mean, it's not even really leadership when you think about it. Uh, You know, leadership is kind of picking your battles and to know when a battle can be won uh, and to live to fight another day because you have not damaged your credibility but it is there is so definitely a dissonance of the fact that people don't seem to they seem to relish the president's fights just for pure entertainment purposes. I mean, it, and but there is a huge disconnect between re- way Republicans see the president and way the way Democrats and Independents see the president. Eighty-two percent of Republicans uh, in his let's say fight with the, with Congress are uh, Republicans are with the president over. The Republicans in the Senate, and certainly that's what I'm sure what's emboldening him to attack Flake, and Corker, etc. But 30 and 32 percent are with Congress. Uh, but that number changes uh, significantly when you go to the general electorate. Um, that the president is still not able to reach behind his base. I mean, maybe he it's like he has a floor, but he might have a ceiling as well, and that is going to be like a centimeter thick. Uh, he can't get past, can't get through that. And I think that's the problem when he goes, is he head into the midterms, he head into 2020 trying to build beyond where you are. Unless there's going to be a lot of accomplishment, a lot of the country is going to be very disappointed with the rhetoric. A lot of the country doesn't like the bombast. A lot of the country is just not happy with the way things are going, and the president is not doing very much to change it. And, uh, you know, as we go in and we think about Republicans and just to go back to the previous point as, as we kind of close this off, you know, as the president uh, goes into that, he's, he's having trouble recruiting candidates to run as Republicans in the United States Senate. OK, so next week we're going to talk about 2017 election preview, New York City, Virginia, New Jersey, uh, Nassau County, Westchester County and the like. See you next week here on the Knuckle Seal Network. Stay tuned with... For Jew in the City Speaks with Allison Josephs.